What's up, guys, and welcome back to the Bitcoin Rapid Fire podcast. I don't do this show for the sponsorships, and as such, I'm very selective about which sponsors I work with. That said, when good companies with founders or teams which I know and respect approach me to work together, I'm open to collaborating. River and CoinKite, companies which help people buy and secure Bitcoin respectively, are two such examples. If you already know all about them, get right to the show by skipping ahead 70 seconds. If not, keep listening. CoinKite, first and foremost, makes products that help you take secure self-custody of your Bitcoin. Their flagship product, the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, has been a favorite of many Bitcoiners for many years. They recently took things to the next level with the announcement of the Cold Card Q1, which takes all the awesome features of the MK4 and adds a full QWERTY keyboard, QR code scanner, large LCD screen, battery power, and a ton more. Beyond that, the CoinKite store is basically Toys R Us for Bitcoiners. Seriously, if you're into Bitcoin, you'll probably want most of the stuff on there. Check it all out, including the popular Block Clock series, or reserve a new Q1 at CoinKite.com. River is the place to build your Bitcoin wealth in the U.S. In my humble opinion, regular dollar cost averaging is the most effective and stress-free way to accumulate Bitcoin. You just set it, forget it, and watch the sats pile up. No timing, no trading, just stacking. And River makes it super easy with their zero-fee recurring Bitcoin purchases. If you want to stack even harder, you can do so with their hosted mining rigs. And if you're a developer or entrepreneur, their Lightning service allows you to integrate Lightning payments into your applications without having to run any Lightning infrastructure yourself. The team is awesome. They're building the future of Bitcoin financial services, and they're in it for the long haul. Learn more about them and all their awesome products and services at river.com today. Let's do it. Uh, dude, this is... Um... I was just looking. We we did this about a year ago. I think we did it in May of uh, last yeah, year. I was trying to remember when the it first was. One. Yeah, and so I think you, year. I think you had maybe you just gotten to El Salvador. I think you were staying in, in Rancho Luco or something at the time, where I have stayed uh, in Zante uh, a couple times when I visited there. But um, you had well, I'll let you introduce yourself first, and then we'll 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 just get into it. So why don't you uh, give the intro for yourself? Sure. Thank you. I'm. Uh... Beef back better. My name's Owen. Um, Australian. I moved to El Salvador in October, and um, I haven't been very active on social media or anything because I haven't had too much that I felt was very important to say. But I've managed to actually get the beef business started here, uh, getting some local. There's some really good local natural grass-fed beef, which is much needed here, and it's kind of blowing up now. So uh, keen to fill you in on on uh, where it's up to. That's awesome. When I was there last, um, and we went to the grocery store to get our beef, but like they have all sorts of, you know, the meat section, at least in the place we were at was huge, but I think it all came from Nicaragua. You know, like I checked the packaging and like the tomahawks we bought and all that kind of stuff, I think was from Nicaragua. So, um, and when we last spoke, you had a small, uh, ranch, you know, beef operation in Australia, I believe. Right. But due to COVID nonsense and maybe you just desire to, well, you tell me what was, and you were, you were in El Salvador at that time, I guess, looking around. So where, where were you at the time and how have things progressed since then? Yeah, that's right. So I came for a month, um, May last year, almost a year ago. And yeah, at that stage I had a little farm in Australia. I've been working in organic certification in organic food and farming that's for right, many years. Yeah. yeah, but never done any farming hands-on myself. So I bought a little farm and during lockdowns and stuff started a little beef operation and it was good it was cool to actually learn 
like it was hard it was good good to actually learn how hard it is and to raise some cattle and i was selling it locally and which was all illegal in australia um and i came for the visit here just as soon as they'd let me out of the country basically a friend was also traveling and he sort of fired me up and said come on like they just opened the borders and you had to have documents and shit but uh so i came over for a visit and stayed for a month and just had a great time as soon as i got back as soon as i landed back in sydney i just didn't want to be there it wasn't exciting to be back in australia at all and then it took six months to pack up everything sell everything sell the farm sell all the equipment sell all the cattle find a home for the dog and the chickens and the cat and and came back here and it was pretty terrifying and it was a lot of work actually but um since what was, I terif arrived, what was terrifying about it uh just uh, letting go of all that everything that i sold or every person i said goodbye to there's just that this feeling of loss like you just want to cry and uh saying goodbye to th even just possessions and stuff and it was like six months of this just getting rid of stuff getting rid of stuff getting rid of stuff it's got to be somewhat liberating too though no you just yeah everything's gone you start fresh somewhere you're light you know you're mobile you're adaptable yeah absolutely i guess i hadn't lived abroad before so it was the first big move for me like that right and the last time i tried to do it was when the lockdown started i was actually going to leave australia a couple of years before and didn't end up going so i was sort of stressed about that too about like am i actually going to be able to go and whatever but um yes yeah, so i got here and ever since then my life's been an adventure like just every day is an adventure <laughs> and i love it so there's i mean there's a lot of in interesting stuff here not only with the beef stuff but there's the el salvador aspect of this that i'd love to get you know i will get your perspective on but uh so you know you sell everything you arrive in el salvador first of all your initial experience must have been good for you to decide that you wanted to go back and kind of restart everything there. Um, and then if that is the case, and you can explain perhaps why that is the case based on your first uh, trip there, what's it been like since getting back in, getting your feet under you, determining what you want to do, how to go about doing it, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I had a good time that last, the month that I had here, four weeks that I had here, um, spent a bit of time in Zonte and... Um, well, I spent three weeks down in El Zonte and um, I was trying to, it was very much a recce, a reconnaissance mission. Like I wanted to understand what it would actually be like living here, if you can actually get stuff here. So I was going to hardware stores and things like that, like working out what it would actually be like. I, for the last week that I was here, I rented a car and rented an apartment in the outskirts of San Salvador in Santa Tecla and just lived in this apartment with the car and sort of <laughs> got used to what I, tried to get get a feel for what it would really be like actually living here so that I wasn't fooling myself because I was just in holiday mode you know the three weeks right. in Zonta I was just in holiday mode so it was all great but in that last week I did a lot of looking around and scoping out and um and realized that yeah you can get everything here and it's quite safe and, and I wasn't sure at that point I was never sure if I wanted to to come back um i had that fit that sinking feeling when i landed in sydney but then i still was never sure of, of whether i wanted to go i just got to this point maybe it was two months into that six months where i was just like i can't decide i'm just going to do it i'm just going to start doing it and i'm going to see how it feels and if i get there i get there so i just couldn't decide <laughs> um so then i just started getting rid of stuff and that's when um 
the train was in motion then. <laughs> right. And I was pretty nervous, like getting up to that point of getting on the plane for the last time, I was pretty nervous about whether I'd just made a terrible mistake. <laughs> um, but it didn't take long after being here that I was happy. Like I just, and part of that, um, part of that was making sure I had motorcycles here, which is funny. It's another, it's a hobby of mine, off-road motorcycling. And I'd made some connections when I was here last time and we went and did some riding and that, that kind of aspect, I already had a bike waiting for me here. And for some reason that was comforting. And, yeah. and as soon as I got here, I went riding with some local guys and, and as soon as I got here, I met some, some other new bit, new people that had arrived, other Bitcoiners from around the world in San Salvador. And, I just rented a little Airbnb and it was small and it wasn't particularly great, but it was in a good area and just fell into a great group of friends in the city and just every day it's been an adventure since then. And I'm living down the beach now, um, which, cause I, I got quite sick for about a week. Maybe it was COVID or whatever. Uh, I was pretty sick though. And I was pretty low then I was having, it was only like, six weeks in or something i had a week where i didn't really go outside and i was getting pretty low <laughs> i was missing home and missing my dog and stuff like that um and that's when i decided to try living down the beach just to get a bit more uh space and fresh air and a healthier lifestyle and and so it's good it's it's pretty hot down here but otherwise it's really nice it's it's uh, i prefer it here than the city yeah right were you there in November of last yeah. year? Yeah, Damn, I got here I when wish... that hurricane came through, early October. Oh, okay. I wish I'd remembered that because I was there for, I was only there for two or three nights around the Adopting Bitcoin conference. We were doing a premiere for the documentary we shot the year before. And um, it was actually the first time I'd spent really any time in San Salvador because every other time, the two other times I'd been there, they were all in, in Zante. And, uh, you know, it's, it has some of the elements of developing country slash third world sort of cities, you know, in terms of its polish, let's say. But um, I really liked it. I don't know if it's because every time I've been there, you know, there's been a lot of Bitcoiners around and there's kind of that hoopla energy. But everyone that I encountered there, you know, like from restaurants to retail operations to cafes to just people on the street hanging out in the central squares and stuff were really professional, inviting polite you know you don't get that kind of like you're a gringo edge like you get in so many other places um and you can tell there's an energy there you know there's a there's an enthusiasm there's a hope there's like people are getting after it they know things are on the up and up they want to participate in it and it's just a like again like you you feel the edge of it being having a you know a tumultuous history and being fairly poor city but you also feel this like tremendous exuberance. And I, I really like the the feel in, in San Salvador last time I was there. <clears throat> yeah, I, I love living there too. It's a beautiful little city. Um, and yeah, I agree with everything you say there. It's, um, well, firstly for the city, the infrastructure is actually pretty good. And yeah, I mean, the conference was at a very nice hotel and there are only two big, very nice hotels really. Um, so we were at one of them. So that was a bit of a, you know, a very nice, you wouldn't, you could have been in any city in the world there and the service was good and the food was good and everything. Um, Did I see you at the conference? 
I did say hello briefly. <laughs> I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to call you out on that. But um, I, I said I was. I was um volunteering, so I was running speaker running. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and I quickly said hello, but well, I'll I, you for that I apologize for that. But <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it's a you, you're saying hi to like you know, yeah, a hundred people within the span of thirty minutes. So uh, you know, it was a great conference. Like yeah, and having that shortly after I arrived was awesome. Like the, I bet, the, yeah, that gave me yeah, and I met lots of people through that. Um, so uh, and volunteering there was really fun. And that was when I just recovered from that whatever that illness was, I just was better in time to go to the conference, fortunately. Yeah, so that area of the city is beautiful, and especially Zona Rosa, San Benito, Santa Elena, Colonia Escalon, like those areas are just beautiful, and you can walk around, you can walk around at night, it's perfectly safe, everywhere is safe in this country, it's incredible. Um, and I was a bit nervous about that early on still, I wasn't going out at night on my own and so on, but it's just, I laugh about that now, like it's so safe here. Um, what a turnaround. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause but, I think the first, when we went there in November 21 to shoot the documentary, um, I think that's when they had like a huge uptick, you know, like the day before we got there, there was like 20 homicides or something like that. And I think that is what immediately preceded the state of exception or whatever it's called. Like, yeah. that, I think it, it seems think like it was that. Still like 17 murders in one day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something like that. And that's what made the government or Bukele just be like, enough is enough. We're, ratcheting things up and i guess it's been tremendously successful how do you uh, talk to you about this a little bit i noticed that you went to uh nostrica recently mm. and i saw your tweet saying you know like you got scammed by the cabbie by a restaurant yeah. but your airbnb you know you can't wait to get back to el salvador and you know again that's kind of what i was referring to earlier about like in so many of these places like el salvador and costa rica and similar places you have that there's like an edge against gringos sometimes right. you feel right and or just yeah. you know generally if you're a tourist in places like people take advantage of you a lot that's the case too yeah. you know you could be in italy and the same same would be true and it just seems like el salvador almost astonishingly because it has such a crazy history uh the people there just seem to be incredibly inviting and friendly and seemingly trustworthy like all these these mishaps that you often have to be on the lookout for and of course you should should still be on the lookout for for them anywhere you go but they mm. seem to be far less prevalent in in el salvador yeah i've been talking about this for a while with people um um my theory is that they don't hate gringos yet because there hasn't there haven't been well, and when i say gringo i mean westerner not just americans um yeah they don't hate for where well, they love foreigners actually most of the locals i meet just um really love foreigners because they haven't had many here for decades there haven't been many people once you get to know us you'll, you'll hate <laughs> well that's my fear like <laughs> you go somewhere like thailand i've spent a lot of time in thailand and people are trying to scam you every day but it's understandable there's been all these dickhead australians going there for 30 years and just boozing and yeah. going to brothels and making a mess of the place mm. and they've got heaps of money so i can understand why they're they don't really like foreigners um they'll give them nice service and stuff but generally there's a bit of a i mean thailand's not thailand's probably to, probably they're still very like, friendly i know i know do, what you're you, saying they'll try yeah. to squeeze you but that you don't there's not an aggressive element to it or there's not a, like a super malicious yeah, element. yeah um yeah. 
in Malaysia, it's like every day someone's trying to scam you and elaborate scams. And I've been scammed out of much. Some of them are elaborate and disgusting and it's every day. And that has never happened to me here, not once in El Salvador. So yeah, I totally agree. I don't know. My theory is just that they don't dislike foreigners yet. And hopefully, especially with a lot of Bitcoiners coming here, we will be respectful and we will return the respect that they that they give us and, um, and we'll not behave like dickheads. And hopefully they won't start to hate us. Has, um, but at the moment, exactly, it's that people will still um, some some of the locals will they they like foreigners so much that they'll some of the locals can sometimes even maybe be a little bit dishonest because they're trying to impress you, right? Um, and maybe some of them are also trying to get some money out of you. But I've nobody's tried to scam me here. I've never had one uncomfortable moment. Nothing's ever been stolen. I've never even had an argument. Like. <laughs> They are generally very helpful, very friendly. All you got to do is smile and they'll smile back and people will want to help you, especially if they see that you're in a spot where foreigners aren't going very often. They'll just come up and say, do you need something? Do you need any help? Um, I was, my mother visited recently and we were down and we visited the historic center, which is sort of a shitty old part of town that's still not yet been cleaned up. Yeah, we, we went um, there in November. Right. There's so much potential there. There's beautiful architecture and stuff. They're cleaning up. The, the government and the, roads. and the owners are cleaning things up now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, people were just coming up and saying, do you need anything? Do you need the bathroom? Do you need some water? Just locals to, <laughs> to help because I was helping my mother around. So yeah, it's, it's a great place from that respect. And um, hopefully it'll stay that way. If we return that respect to the locals. You, you know, that place when we went down there, it's about, it was like a half an hour, 40 minute ride from where the conference was. Yep. And um, on both you know, going there and coming back, both of our taxi drivers, you know, one of our crew spoke fluent Spanish. And so they were chatting the whole time. And they both said that just, you know, three, four years ago in 18, 19, even a local wouldn't go to that square with anything of value whatsoever, and probably wouldn't even go there. Uh, because that's how dangerous it was. And now, you know, people are just out there enjoying life. Basically, there's stands where you can buy fruits and candies and whatever else and kids are playing in the square and they had like nice christmas light installations up and you know it's just people enjoying life basically and it's just it's, it's amazing that uh you know a few short years ago people wouldn't even risk going there yeah so i've heard a couple of different um responses on that topic from locals um so locals who have been living in some like near the hotel, like up in Colonia Escalon and, and been running a business there for a few years, they will say, oh, it hasn't really changed that much because they're right, already right. living in a very they were safe. in the nice neighborhoods. Right. Yeah. And they kind of haven't noticed, but they would also, yeah, oh no, we never go to the historic center. We never go to Ilopango. We never go to Soyapango. We never go to Mexicanos. Those places are dangerous. You don't go there. Um, yeah. But in their day-to-day life, they haven't seen any change. That's, and even even some of the locals that say, "Oh no, that place is dangerous," uh, that reputation. I'm just. I think this is roughly right. I, I'm sort of inferring from from talking to people here, which I do as much as I can. Um, one place can get a bad reputation from one incident, right? And then people will say, "Oh, that's a dangerous place." Um, so it will be one gang murder that happened, or even as even a civilian like. Uh, you know, a non-gang member got caught up in something or kidnapped, you know, two years ago once in that area. Uh, and, it, and it'll then be stuck with that reputation. Um, so, but but yes, many 
um, taxi. There's so many people coming back here. Like it's real. The stuff that you see Max Kaiser posting and stuff like that, it's real. Like, every week I meet someone who's coming, who's moving back here. They've lived in the United States for 10 or 20 or 30 years. And now they're moving back because it's, it's safer here than, than the United States now. And, yeah. and there are more opportunities here. The cost of living's too much in the States and the government's gone mad. Uh, every week I meet someone like that and the, the support for what Bekele doing in terms of um, locking up the gang members is very high. Um, obviously, uh, occasionally someone innocent gets caught up in that, but that happens everywhere in the world. I don't know what percentage of prison inmates in the United States are innocent either. It wouldn't be zero. So I have, you know, the, there are some concerns about them getting a fair trial and so on, but um, it's now a completely safe country for locals and for foreigners, um, for violent crime and for petty. So to sort of come back to talking about Costa Rica, like violent crime is very rare in Costa Rica from what I hear, but, but petty theft and stuff is just every day. <laughs> like mm. you get your car broken into, we had someone come into the Airbnb and steal some stuff while we were there. And this is just every day and the police do nothing. The, the, a local a guy that's lived there for 17 years told me they report theft to the police and the police do nothing. So I'm like thinking that's not good. Costa Rica's not gonna get better. With, and there are so many foreigners there and it's so expensive there that um, little thefts and little scams are prevalent. And here there seems to be, even before cleaning up the gangs, there seems to already be, except uh, outside of the gang culture, uh, a culture of not much theft. Um, when we go, as an example, we go motorcycling and stay at a hotel and there are all these motorcycles um, on the backs of pickups and on trailers and nobody locks up the bikes. And I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, you just leave the motorcycle outside on the street and not locked up, just parked outside like a $10,000 motorcycle on a trailer, not locked. And they're laughing at me for, for thinking that I should lock it. In Australia, they would all be gone like that. Yeah. They'd yeah. be gone. There's organized crime gangs that steal motorcycles in Australia. You cannot leave a bike unlocked. It'll be gone. So um, it's all these little things that are hard to understand unless you're here. But yeah, I can confirm from in my experience that it's extremely safe here. You can go walking at night. I would even like certainly in those good areas and even now in the historic center. And I've also been right up in, in, in the hills up near Honduras and Guatemala and it seems perfectly safe up there as well what do you what's your because this is a at least for some bitcoiners and some international commentators the discussion regarding the legitimacy let's say of the tactics that the bukele administration has used to resolve this violence and crime issue what's your personal feelings about it obviously you you just you know the results i think you uh you're you support the results how do you feel about how they've been achieved it's a really difficult topic. I don't know the answer because I have heard of two. Is it two? Yeah, I've heard of two cases. Um, basically, just one person removed. So, so somewhat reliable cases where a supposedly innocent person was locked up. Mm -hmm. Two cases I've heard of, and that's a terrible tragedy. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, and you, they say that they're going to get a fair trial. They say that each person gets goes in front of a judge before they're locked up but there are 60,000 people so i don't know how that, that backlog's going to take 
apparently there are 60,000 people locked up. So it's an impossible topic. I don't know the answer. If someone's locked away, someone who's innocence locked up for who knows how long, then that's a tragedy. But like I say, that happens everywhere. I mean, it, in, so maybe one or 2% of the population here are now in jail. But that's similar to Australia and the United States. It's around 1% of people are in jail. Around 1% of people can't be trusted to live in society because they're, they're going to mess with everyone else. So there should be, I mean, all we've worked out to do with those people is lock them up. And I can't think of a better thing to do. And there's just this horrible reality that occasionally innocent people get locked up. And I, I don't know the answer, but um, that is happening. And to what extent, I don't know. But it's no different to anywhere else. Like, if you can't afford a good lawyer in the States, and <laughs> you're going to get locked up as well. That's yeah. a terrible situation there. I mean, um, here, one of those two is out now. Um, and they did a GoFundMe or whatever, and, and they were able to go through the channels and they were able to get him out. So that's really good. I'm very pleased to see that. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's about all I can think to say on the topic. Yeah, I mean, there's no perfect solutions. Um, and El Salvador is coming from such an extreme situation. You know, how do you what is the appropriate rep uh, response to such an extreme situation? And uh, you, you, I agree with you that someone who's innocent being incarcerated is definitely a tragedy. And you can't, you know, these sorts of questions, you can't balance them in this way, but it's also the case that all the innocent people being killed by those now incarcerated people is a horrible tragedy, yeah. right? And so you've got to act, you've got to address the situation in some way, and given the scale of it, you know, given how many, let's say, um, gangsters there were and, you know, all their activities, you know, you got to cast a pretty broad net. And, you know, how do you not, how do you cast that broad net and have it be effective with a 0% error rate? I mean, it's just impossible, right? Yeah. And I think the way that it's been done, I, I can't think of a better way to have done it. And it's enormously popular. Yeah. Um, not just in El Salvador, but throughout latin america it's enormously popular what he's doing yeah and as we've been discussing has been extremely successful you know there's a there's a lot of nuances there but again like it's easy to to criticize and or you know and i talk about principles all the time and i you know i talk about the very slippery slope of the ends justifying the means and all these mm. sorts of things and those are valid conversations but they're also way easier to have in the realm of theory, like where, you know, people like myself can just sit on a podcast and discuss, you know, high and mighty principles. And I, I don't even, I shouldn't refer to them that way because I believe in like the validity or the sacredness of certain values and principles for the type of experience that they generate when people are acting, you know, co or coordinating or cooperating. But there's a practicality to being placed in that real world situation. Like, and, you know, the, I think the question is like, if you, you can criticize it all you want, if you were in that situation, how would you solve that problem? And yeah. And the, the Western media and, and also the, some of the internal, like El Faro media here, that's very anti Bekele, anti everything he does, um, love to focus on the injustice and the human rights of the 
But, um, but but Kelly articulates it very well in his speeches. He says, you know, these, yeah, these organisations are talking about the human rights of the terrorists. What about the human rights of the victims? And so, yeah, he's doing that. He's explaining. He's telling the story well. And um, I haven't heard of any like you can trust the police here now um, completely. They actually have a joke. And <laughs> I heard a saying from one of the locals that El Salvador is a country where clowns direct traffic and police tell you jokes. I don't know if when you were here, did you ever see any of the guys dressed up as clowns directing traffic for, for tips? I don't, I don't. I can't They're terribly recall. annoying because they basically <laughs> hold up the traffic and then they let you through and then they want their money. And then the police will be like, hey, how you going? I'm telling you a joke. Um, sorry, it's a bit of a tangent. But no, yeah, no. The, the, I haven't heard one story of the, of the cops shaking down people or anything like that or... Um, and I don't even, I wouldn't even try to bribe them here um, I'd, like you would in Costa Rica or Guatemala or Nicaragua or, um, you know, if you get a speeding fine or something, you're just going to give them 20 bucks. But here, I wouldn't probably even do that because I don't think they'd be into it. I think you're better off going through the system because the fine will be small anyway or they'll probably let me off anyway. Um, but the, the police seem, seem good here. That's another thing I noticed when I was there. I mean, first to your point, I've I've listened to most of Bukele's speeches and stuff, and I gotta hand it to him. I, I listened to him speak, and one, I said I think that guy is sharp, you know, like he, you know, he's on point, he's thinking clearly, it seems. And I think he's articulating himself in what seems to be an honest way, but also uh in a very logical and rational way in relation to certain values and principles that he deems to be most important for governing and you know uh yeah for for governing and and it seems like the people the most important metric is is how the people there feel and you know all of my encounters people are extremely happy with him and with the state of affairs but you know i, I he seems like a, a sharp rational operator to me and then i observe I, I met some of the you know higher up government officials when i was there in the police and in tourism and stuff like that and um and even just observing them on twitter and wherever else they like it seems like they all got the message that it's time to level up you know like anything that the government does or government officials do in, in el salvador maybe not everything but my impression is always I'm, I'm always struck like wow they seem really well put together like they seem they seem polished they seem professional they seem now you'll We'll we'll see if you contradict this in terms of like getting you know uh, titles and stuff for land or whatever. We'll we'll break into that in a moment. But at least outwardly facing, I guess that's what I'm talking about. Um, it seems like, uh, yeah, like like everyone has kind of been told that it's time to level up. It's time to you know do things the right way. It's time to represent and present yourself, you know, properly or you know uh, in a respectable manner. And may, you know that's that's the as in so far as you think government has any legitimacy whatsoever and there's an in, there's a discussion to be had there but if you do wouldn't you want the government to be kind of something that's worthy of emulation to some degree or at least the the, the characters in the government like you know they're put together they're honest they're articulate they're 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 trying to do well by the people that they're ostensibly serving you know and again there's there's a legitimacy of government is a whole other thing but it, it just uh it's a far, it seems to me a far cry from the type of public officials that you in Australia, myself in Canada, people in the US and everywhere else in the world have had to deal with over the last 
you know, however many years where everyone seems like a clown. Everyone seems corrupt. Nobody is speaking honestly, frankly, nobody is speaking rationally with, with any degree of logic. Like it's just complete clown world everywhere. And it's refreshing to see something different than that. You know, yeah. So, so um, there's still a government, so they're still <laughs> bad. And, and if they're not currently bad, they'll probably go bad. And I don't know what the answer to that is either. Um, so I'm not, I get a bit upset with the likes of Alex Gladstein when they refer to people like perhaps like you and I who speak positively about Bekele by calling us, what does he call it? Bekele simps. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, like, I don't know. Anyway, we won't go down that path, but um, I'm well, not a Bekele you, simp. But I, yeah. uh, and I think that, yeah, governments are largely, governments are generally bad or they'll go bad or they'll get kicked out and replaced by someone bad. And I don't know what the solution to that is. And that may well happen with the Bekele government as well. He, he may go bad. I think now he's not bad as far as governments go. Uh, there's still a lot of bureaucracy here, um, but you are absolutely right. There has been some sort of top-down directive where, all right, we're open for business now. We help people. And when you're dealing with, it's still bureaucratic and you still have to do a lot of footwork if you're going to immigration office or you're going to get a vehicle registered or you're going to buy a vehicle or buy some land. It's still very bureaucratic. There are forms to fill in. There are things you have to do. But Everyone that I've dealt with from government and lawyers and so on are really helpful. Um, so, and that's apparently different to a few years ago. There used to be brick walls. You, you'd just say, oh, no, you got to do this. You got to go talk to that guy. And he'd say, oh, no, you got to do that. You got to go talk. And you just get the runaround and you couldn't get anywhere with any government department, like in Venezuela at the moment or something. Right. And yeah, there's been some sort of directive. They haven't actually managed to streamline procedures especially well but there's been a huge attitude change that's very noticeable that they're generally trying to help and even perhaps well probably yeah largely as a foreigner um if i say and i'll try to say it as politely as i can i'll say that's that's a bit silly like can you make an exception they'll generally go yeah okay <laughs> so i learned to say can you make an exception in spanish and generally they say yes the one that's still bad is customs import duties is customs is um is a big problem and the way that all of the locals get around that is by just faking documentation to reduce their import taxes and i don't want to do that so i'm being a dumb gringo and paying ridiculous taxes for imports but but kelly mentioned recently that that's something that's going to get looked at the import taxes if they were more reasonable and if it was more streamlined then perhaps people would pay them so there's a huge gray market everything comes in in suitcases from the united states at the moment it's very frustrating to not be able to bring it in legitimately so i think they'll reform that at some point um so yeah it's still bureaucratic but very polite and helpful and actually quite fast um and a real attitude of wanting to help maybe especially the foreigners i guess but hopefully also for the locals um what's the status on you know because when the bitcoin law was announced and then later enacted in tandem with that there was a, a commitment to like well what you just said like streamlining deregulating being open for business kind of get getting rid of all or a, a lot of the bureaucracy and just trying to focus on you know being conducive or, or supportive of entrepreneurship and business generally um What's been the holdup there? Has it had something to do with the the volcano bonds? Like why why can't those things be changed more quickly? And you, I mean, you just mentioned that Bukele recently said that uh, 
there's going to be some changes made perhaps. Um, and I saw that he was, maybe it was last week, maybe even this week, he was sending something to Congress to that effect. But Yeah, that one, yeah. Yeah. So and when like, he says what, it's getting sent to Congress, it's going to basically get through. Um, and that was just a, like a deregulation sort of bill? like. Or, well, or the, it'll be in the details. It said it was to do with tech and it was to do with oh, that's taxes, right, right. taxes right. And, which I assume is importing taxes, but also producing locally. And that could be huge. Like if you could get, even if it's something as simple as bringing in laptops uh, without having to pay tax, then it just makes things better for for all the locals to be able to access stuff like that more cheaply. I don't know what the hold up is. I guess the gang stuff, I, I don't have any insight into, into the government stuff. Um, I suppose I've, I'm still uh, just cautiously optimistic about what's actually going to happen in terms of like the visa program that I'm on and that everybody I know are on were existing visa programs. They're not the three Bitcoin thing that didn't ever happen um i think even some of the details of the volcano bonds are released now i think it's only available to accredited investors so there are but already the the visas that were available were, or there is there's one for everyone basically already um and it might take a few years to get permanent residency and then a few more years to get citizenship but they're they've just been uh continuing as before so um i guess the the holdups have been to do with the gang everything else the government has to deal with right um but um yeah i I don't know how it will i'm just waiting and wait and see in terms of bitcoin city um one of the reasons i'm not super interested is it's a very hot part of the country and i don't know if i'd want to live down there unless it's a very well designed city which it might be um and i haven't seen any sort of investment packages or anything that are especially interesting to me like i still probably wouldn't buy a volcano bond i'd probably just buy bitcoin unless it got me citizenship straight away by the looks of it they're only available to accredited investors anyway mm-hmm. which apparently you can you can do that through well which i wouldn't be eligible for so um I yeah think, um yeah I, I think they should you know with the, the citizen the citizenship or the passport thing I mean, I, I'd love to see them take a different approach than all these other tax haven island nation small countries have done, you know, like your St. Kitts or your Vanuatu or your, you know, even Portugal and places like that. I mean, most of them are some flavor of citizenship or passport via investment, right? So either you loan the, the government 100K, 200K, whatever, or you buy that amount in property, you buy that amount in some sort of sanctioned fund, and then you get your passport. But it's, it's so transactional. It's like, I don't want to live in Vanuatu, I just, but here's 200 grand and I have the passport and now it's whatever. I have a, a second, more options. But like, why not? I just think there's, you know, that administration has done a lot of things differently. I think they should treat, and this is somewhat uh, arrogant, I suppose, but I, I, I think they should treat the people that want to move there and live there, a lot of whom are probably Bitcoiners, as like, see them as the asset that I think they probably are in. And what I mean by that is like, why not incentivize them? Like not, not just you you put a hundred thousand plus price tag on it, like everybody else does, but like realize that if you can, can incentivize this group of people who are, you know, well, probably more well capitalized than the average person, more entrepreneurial minded, more kind of motivated to participate in, you know, building out this parallel world that is bitcoin like all all those things 
why not incentivize to come? Because I think, you know, and maybe they don't want it too quickly and maybe that's part of it. But uh, I think if you lowered that dramatically or you turn, you, you took a different approach than just the transactional, you know, pay for your passport sort of thing. Uh, and you made it like, cause a lot of Bitcoiners around the world now, my impression from speaking to people everywhere, they're interested. They're like, yeah, I heard a lot of great things about El Salvador and even people that have visited. They're like, yeah, they had a great experience, but it's not yet compelling enough to be like, I'm going to uproot myself or my family from wherever we are and move. But if there was, you know, if there was tax incentives, if the, if the, you know, price to get your citizenship or the time wasn't the same as everywhere else, or if it was done construed in a different way, or, you know, add some creativity to the mix, but the punchline being that people are actually kind of compelled by how strong that incentive is. I think a lot of people would be pushed over that edge and they come in droves basically. Now, again, maybe they don't want that immediately because, you know, it would be too disruptive, but um, I, I don't know. I, hopefully there's a different approach because just the, the, the normal I think that's one. Probably what the, I don't know, but I think that's probably what the holdup is. I think that's what they're trying to work out um, because there has been here for decades, the brain drain has been real. Like every, every smart young person who's been able to go to the United States has gone. And yeah. every, even every, almost every young person now still want to go. It's just sort of a legacy thing. Um, and and they've been right to go. There's been no opportunities here. Um, it's been unsafe. So the smartest and the most capable have been leaving for decades, and it's noticeable. I saw some statistics about IQ, and it's terrifying. Like the yeah, the the smart people, a lot of them left. And so I think um, I think that the Bukele government's probably thinking along your lines. I don't know, but I think that, and I think that might be what they're trying to work out. Because they actually want to attract talent. Um, and not just necessarily sell passports because what happens to those countries that just sell passports like Vanuatu is that the passports become devalued they mm -hmm. the agreements the visa-free access gets smaller and smaller because the countries not especially Vanuatu for instance where they let any old <laughs> if you've got a criminal record and you're looking for a second passport you go for a Vanuatu one you know <laughs> so other countries know that and they um so the passport becomes devalued so maybe they're mm -hmm. trying to find that balance yeah yeah, I hope so. Um, what was one one more thing I wanted to? Oh, oh yeah, you know, we we referenced. Um, you know, foreigners have been coming, even despite whatever the current visa and and passport and citizenship situation is. Many have been coming. What what's your impression of kind of how many are coming and you know what they're getting up to and you know have your experiences and interactions with been how have your experiences and inter interactions been with other you know, expats or foreigners that have come to start a new life in El Salvador? Yeah, really positive. There are a lot coming. It's hard for me to get an idea of the actual numbers, but uh, there are a lot of Canadians uh, and a few Australians. But it's amazing, um, even for Christmas lunch, for instance, I was at a lunch and we had something like 20 people from all around the world and all really smart, interesting people. And I, like, you, you normally wouldn't get that you wouldn't have got that in San Salvador a little while ago. It felt like I was in Singapore or, or Shanghai or Bangkok or something, some sort mm -hmm. of, uh, or Switzerland, like to have a table of 20 people who are all doing very interesting things, very smart, capable people are all moving here. Um, so that's pretty cool. It's become this international hub uh, of interesting Bitcoiners who, and because of the Bitcoin thing, and also because of that, uh, the COVID uh, filter, the, uh, 
um, there's some selection there and they tend to be freedom oriented people. And I don't know the, the magnitude, but I reckon it's probably, I mean, it has to be hundreds of families that have come since I've been here um, to, to the point where I, and I don't know them all. I, I know dozens, I know dozens of, of people. Um, even in this housing complex here where I'm living, there are four or five, actually, I met another lady today. She's a local Bitcoiner, actually. So she's not actually her part of the discussion, but the, yeah, there are five other Bitcoiner households just in this little housing estate. And there's like three in the housing estate there and there's another three there. And we're not even in Alzonte or San Salvador. We're just in, in between. So yeah, it has to be hundreds of families coming and all of the ones that I've met have been great. Um, and they've not been here to get drunk and party and, and piss off the locals. They're, they're here to have freedom, but also freedom. To, to maybe to try to opportunity rebuild the place because it really is, it really feels like the land of opportunity, like um, for entrepreneurs, they need everything here. And because of that brain drain for decades, um, there's, and it was just too hard to do business here for so long that even if you've got a reasonable idea and some sort of experience in implementing it, um, you'll be able to do it because people want it. People are welcoming. And that's what I'm experiencing with the beef business is all the support from locals and foreigners. Uh, it's just something that's needed. Um, but before we get onto the beef business, I feel like we should mention the Bitcoin. We were talking about government a lot, but we didn't talk about Bekele's Bitcoin policy directly um did you want me to yeah give you an update on that yeah so it. it seems like unfortunately it's probably with the locals it's probably his least popular policy mm -hmm. which is interesting just because well mostly because people don't understand the why he's doing this bitcoin thing um so wherever possible we talk about it with the locals and and eventually they usually they'll start to understand um so there that there are atms in all of the towns there are the chivo atms and they still have staff ready to explain how to use the atm and the chivo wallet's getting better um it's getting a lot better it's very reliable there are fewer and fewer people getting funds locked up the customer service takes it if a transaction doesn't go through for whatever reason, because the government, uh, it's the Chivo wallet and the Chivo ITMs are fully controlled by the government. So you have, we explain that to the locals when we can. Um, if a transaction's stuck, it's usually stuck in some sort of um, ledger that the government are running and you have to call customer support and you have to start, and they'll go and they'll take you through one by one, the basic troubleshooting, which is frustrating for an experienced Bitcoin. It's like, no, no, I, I sent it to the right address and blah, blah, blah but eventually you'll get your funds back but that is probably this yeah, least popular policy um because some people lost lost their 30 dollars, and then the price went down as well but it, but right. it's actually it's getting better the atms are getting better the, the wallet's working better more people are using it the chivo wallet it's not except i can't use it but uh only citizens can use it apparently also companies so maybe if i start a company i'll be able to use it because it has banking connections with every bank instant and, and no fee it's pretty amazing, actually, that how they've done that. Um, so I can pay for pay with Bitcoin for my rent through my agent, and the agent can send cash straight to the bank account of the landlord. 
man that's fucking awesome yeah it's good so now i'm paying my rent and my electricity my mobile my cell phone my internet cable fast cable internet um the only thing i'm not paying with bitcoin is the gas the the gas bottles that arrive so it's day-to-day it's pretty good and the shopping center just near here all of the vendors except bitcoin and it's all working well though some wow. of them use chivo some of them use athena but it's it's just it's getting better really quickly a lot of people were frustrated and and rightly so but it is it's getting better um, when you when you draw cash so let's say i go up to a chivo atm with blue wallet or whatever do i need to provide any identifying information or do i just send it bitcoin and it outputs cash sms verify so the extent of the kyc is a sms text Wow, you, you can put get your a, phone number into the ATM and then you, you can get, get a, a, a SIM without any KYC usually by one me, one way or another, no? I wouldn't do something like that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a, you just need a SMS verify. That's it for a thousand dollars a day. So, I mean, if places don't accept Bitcoin directly, then, you know, you can just always get cash from an ATM and, yeah, you know, effectively spend it that way. Yeah, Man, that's, sometimes that's the ATMs so fail. Um, and there was recently an issue with because the the Chivo ATMs will accept zero confirmation on chain um, if you've got RBF disabled. So if you just go up with Blue Wallet and you don't disable RBF and you send some Bitcoin to the ATM, you're going to be waiting right. ten minutes or right, or twenty right. minutes or half an hour, and that's frustrating. But if you turn RBF off. Then it should accept zero conf. But even that, there was a little problem, and the local Chivo guy sorted it out in a day. It was annoying some locals that AT, they had to wait at the ATM for a confirmation, and so yeah, that's annoying. It, but it was a glitch, and they fixed it. Um, does does so, the does the interop like you mentioned the Chivo wallets for the locals, like they can easily send to their connected bank accounts or whatever? Is there any like? Bitcoin banking services in the country yet? I mean, that's that's kind of one because if you can switch back and forth, I mean, that's a, a definitely facilitating, you know, banking services of a kind. But is there any, you know, bank there that's like, we're the one that helps intermediator, you know, between these two systems basically, and you can do business banking and you can, you know, all that kind of stuff. Is there anything like that yet? I'm not sure. Um... I just don't know. I just don't have the experience. I, I know that there was one other wallet that was trying to get the banking connections. I think they've decided not to do to go down that path. Um, but then I'm thinking of like Ibex, some of the more payment gateway focused Bitcoin processes, I think also have banking connections. Ibex open node, maybe. Um, Can you get a local bank account? Yeah. Oh yeah. Foreigner can get a bank account. Yeah. They sometimes but- restrict it. I don't have one, but they sometimes restrict uh they put a limit that you have to wait a waiting period before you can use swift which is sort of annoying but a three-month waiting period before you can use swift for instance but yeah you can get a bank account it's just a matter of going to the bank with a spanish speaker and just and spending a few hours there but you still <laughs> wouldn't the, be able to to, to get chivo because that's get chivo, you need to do a you need a uh a passport but apparently you can get it a with a company using the NIT, which is the tax identification number, you, so you can have a company bank account, and then you can then you're allowed to use Chivo. Um, but so you could you could um, be living in El Salvador and have Bitcoin, and let's say you wanted to buy real estate in France, and you could liquidate Bitcoin into your 
local bank account and do an international wire to a bank in France and pay for real estate that way? Is that um, well, if you had Chivo, yes. So you you can't but... send you you can't deposit. There's no way of getting your Bitcoin as a as a USD deposit in a bank without Chivo. I wouldn't say there's no way. It's probably doable. I just don't have that knowledge. Um, right. I currently don't have. I'm not aware of any sort of large scale dollar off ramp here that I could use. But that's. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just not aware of it. Right. So right. I can well, go to a meetup and sell Bitcoin uh, for dollars. I can go to a Chivo ATM and get a thousand dollars a day. If I wanted to get fifty grand, I'm not sure how I'd do that. Right. Um, without well, having without, it seems, but, yeah and uh, many many locals will just let you use their chivo they're like oh yeah send me some bitcoin and i'll send the dollars to wherever you want to send them but not for a big amount they'll be nervous about that because they yeah. might they might the bank might ask questions Every, a lot of people here are like oh no the bank will ask questions they don't like the banks because they <laughs> ask questions and i'm like i hear you yeah so totally uh well it seems it sounds like that's kind of an inevitability. I mean, it's it's almost all the way there. So hopefully that'll be the case soon. Um, all right. Well, um, let's let's hear about the the beef business. Um, I don't know where you want to start. I'm curious just how you got started. You know, how do you you're exploring the country? You you know what you want to do. Like, how do you find the appropriate land, and how do you go through all that kind of stuff? I mean, hit hit me. Yeah. Well, I had I had, so. Um... I haven't been talking about it too much because I just wasn't sure if I was going to be successful. I just didn't know if it was possible, if I was going to be able to actually ever have some beef to sell. So I wasn't talking about it too much, but the whole time I was here, I was just basically keeping an eye out and keeping an ear out, talking to everybody that I could about whether there's some, um, whether there's some good beef around. Uh, I had a clear idea that I didn't want to own land. And I think most people, well, many people, when they think, oh, cool, set up beef in El Salvador, they think buy a farm. And I had a very, having bought a farm in Australia and run it, I had a very clear uh, image that I didn't want to buy a farm. I didn't want to try to run cattle here directly, personally, because it's just, I don't know the landscape well. Um, I didn't know about cattle theft, about, you know, getting along with neighbours and all of those things just would be so hard. So my aim was to just see if I could find good farms. And I just started looking, I started talking to people, even if I was riding motorcycles up in the hills, if I saw some nice cattle, I'd talk to the farmer in the best Spanish I could and uh, about how he was raising the cattle and where he was selling them. I went to every butcher shop. Well, they don't even have butcher shops, let's be honest. They're meat shops. They're where they open a box of chemical soaked feedlot raised meat that's been frozen and thawed half a dozen times from Nicaragua and put it on display. They don't they're not really butcher shops, but I went to all the meat shops and the supermarkets and would ask the butchers there, um, you know, where it's from and how they do it and stuff like that. And just asking around, I went, I visited a few farms that were not so, they weren't bad, but they were, it wasn't going to work in terms of them being too isolated or, uh, or them not having enough product or the product not being finished. Um, and then so I wasn't super active. I didn't come in all guns blazing, trying to say, right, I'm going to, I'm going to fix the beef thing here. I was just over the last five months, just asking around and uh, eventually someone reached out on Twitter, a Bitcoiner who sells coffee. His father um, was a beef 
is a beef producer who's a bit dissatisfied with the prices and the difficulty doing business here. Because the, the supermarket, the one big supermarket chain have quite a bit of control here. Um, the owner of that supermarket chain is the guy who ran against Bekele in the last election, interestingly, just as a side note, um, which might have something to do with why their Bitcoin payment uh, process at those supermarkets is one of the worst implementations in the country, maybe. Um, so yeah, just asking around and just learning as much as I could. I, the, the beef from the supermarket, what some, some of the supermarkets said, oh yeah, this is local. Some said this is from Nicaragua. So I worked out that some was, there was a local industry. There was some local meat getting onto the shelves, but it was all terribly butchered. And, and often it was in, you could taste it, it was in this chemical brine. Um, eventually this guy reached out and I met with him and his father and he said it worked. He, he didn't think he could do what I wanted, um, but he gave me the number of another guy who has a couple of brothers. They have some land in the Sonsonate region, which is irrigated country. They're completely surrounded by sugarcane fields, but they're still farming beef cattle. And I went and spoke to, and it's just a miracle that this farm, um, I'll rewind a little bit. I'd managed to find processing facilities. I found a government abattoir and another sort of a butcher shop. Again, they're just importing boxes of meat from Honduras, Nicaragua, and the United States, the premium stuff from the United States, which I also don't like eating. Um, so I almost had the supply chain potential. And then I'm thinking, okay, I need a refrigerated truck and I needed this and I needed that to, to join the dots. But then I managed to find this farm and they have an abattoir on site and they have fat cattle because they're on irrigated country. And this farm is fantastic. Um, and you so say, worked... is, it, is it foreign owned or, or local? No, no, local guys, owned. three local brothers. Nice. Yeah. Um, funny guys, young guys, just enjoy farming cattle. They make more money than the sugarcane guys, but they have to do a lot more work. They employ like 30 people on the farm. Um, they do everything on horseback. And it's magic country, like the steep volcanic fertile soil well-drained and on, on the farm, there's a spot where water just pours out of the ground, like this much water constantly, drinking Amazing. water quality. So there's, there's good groundwater sources here if you can find them. And yeah, most of the land around them is just under sugarcane and it's, they use a lot of pesticides and stuff, um, unfortunately on that. And, and the local farmers, Many local farmers, if they've got that good country, are switching to sugarcane because the cane company does everything for them. They come with the big tractors and they plant and they uh, and they just give them twenty percent of the profits, apparently, or something like that. Um, but you got to let them spray all the stuff they want to spray and use the synthetic fertilizers and so on. So, uh, a lot of the good country has switched to sugarcane production. But this little oasis that I found. They're still growing cattle and it's just with native pastures, um, they're not, they don't even need to use fertilizers. They do return the, the manures uh, and, the, and the waste from the abattoir back, they compost and, and put it back on the paddocks. And they have lots of fences and they move the cattle every three or four days. I just couldn't believe it when I found this farm. It's not, technically it wouldn't quite comply with organic certification because that's my background, but that, and that's the background that's allowed me to visit probably like a thousand farms in, in 15 countries over the last 15 years. Uh, and this farm is like world-class. I just can't believe that I found it. 
and I'm not telling anyone where it is. <laughs> not yet. Um, why wouldn't it? Eventually. Why why wouldn't it? You know, qualify for certified organic? Is it just too close um, to other other farms that use pesticides or what? Well, the sugar canes nearby, but they actually have implemented buffer zones. So actually, the land would comply, but the cattle aren't always born on the farm. They collect they they from the hills. Even in Guatemala, they they get some of the the young cattle. So they drive around and and buy the the six month old cattle, uh, the calves from from the small farmers in the villages all the way up into Guatemala and all throughout El Salvador. And then they bring them onto this farm for around a year onto the onto the good pasture and, and finish them up to sort of a two-year-old and not big, not not really thick fat cover, but but properly finished like um pretty good good T-bones and ribeyes and stuff. So Technically, for a certified organic product, they have to be born on an. In fact, it's from before they're born. It's from uh, the last trimester of the pregnancy. The mother has to be on certified gotcha. organic land. So that's gotcha. a sort of a technicality. Actually, in almost every other way, they would be compliant. And and indeed, the farm is better than many organic farms that I've been to in terms of their active management. But that's just what I love to see about it. It's they're not doing rotational grazing because it's cool or because they can say it's regenerative or say it's organic or they're doing it because it's profitable. It's a, it's the best way to, to manage pastures is to, is to move, is to run a big mob and move them as frequently as you can. So they've got 250 tiny paddocks. They move them every three days. It's a fantastic farm. I was so excited to find it. Um, and, and they also happen to have an abattoir on site. So um, I only had to, Put together the last part of the supply chain the freezers and packing uh, and and delivery um, and we got started and uh, there, there's many challenges but we just did our second kill yesterday actually uh, and that went well and the secret in one of the secret ingredients that i'm doing that nobody in the country that i can find does is uh, aging aging the carcass for seven days so we break it down to quarters and they go in the cool room between one and five degrees for seven days uh, ish. And that really improves the meat quality, the, the eating of the meat, it makes it more tender and a little drier and even the taste, the flavor even gets better. So is the, is the model, I guess, the business model, just you have sourced, you know, the best meat effectively you know, that's in uh, accord with certain principles and quality and all that jazz. And you just buy, so in this particular case, you buy an animal from these brothers and then you process it and then you put it under your own branding and label and packaging and you sell it to your own, you know, direct to consumer customers, however you gain them. Is that the idea? Exactly. Yeah. At the moment, I, so I buy the animal alive and I'm there when we process it. Um, so I choose it and observe the kill and processing and um, we put we put security tags on the with my name on them in the cool room to try to somewhat guarantee the traceability but I trust these guys anyway they're good good guys and then I'll go back a week later and we do the butchering together which is that's really difficult because they the butch the, yeah, the butchery skills here are, are different and then they don't have names for they don't they have very broad names for cuts 
and I'm not a butcher too. That's the main problem. If I had those skills personally, then I could just direct it. But, but we, we've got enough skill to, to get it done okay. And then, yeah, packing it packing it and distributing it. I'm just doing mixed packs at the moment. Um, I was trying to do a 10-pound mixed pack that's half ground beef and half steaks and ribs. Um, I, last time, I only managed to actually get to seven pounds per pack to, to fill the orders we had. And I'm actually going to run with seven pounds because it'll be weekly. We'll get in a we'll get into a weekly kill schedule pretty soon, I think, hopefully. And uh, a seven pound pack. And I only accept Bitcoin. And uh, and at the moment, <laughs> I'm just delivering delivering for free um, between San Salvador and El Zonte. But I, right. there are many Selling. problems and much to work out, like uh, whether to charge for delivery and how to outsource the delivery, and all these things will will come with sure, time sure. for now it's for now i'm just doing it personally which is i really like because i'm actually meeting my customers and we're talking about totally. why and i'm getting the feedback and so all bitcoiners that, all the clients um i mean they're paying in bitcoin i guess so they must have yeah that's uh, um... that's providing a filter <laughs> yeah mostly bitcoiners but there are there are a few locals now on on the on the potential customer list that will be notifying when when oh. it's available we have a few locals now so not all foreign do, bitcoiners do, do they have any you know stupid what i deem stupid agricultural laws in el salvador like yep. you mentioned in uh australia same is true in canada like you can't sell raw milk uh and i mean there's there's a couple yeah there's you know canada has basically a, da a, 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 dairy, a, a dairy cartel in, in in canada but what what are the rules in el salvador well, there's one really stupid rule that's still here from the agricultural reform from the Duarte government, apparently in 1991, which was that you're not allowed to own more than 245 hectares of land. So the Duarte government stole all the land from the big commercial farm. That was the end of agriculture here. From what I can gather, it was, was 91. Um, they just stole all of the, the land from, from the commercial larger scale farmers. I mean, and I like small farms, don't get me wrong, but uh, they distributed that among their friends and and uh, 245 hectares is big enough to do a vegetable operation but it's not really big enough to do a commercial scale beef operation so I've heard from I've heard from firsthand accounts from several people who wanted to set up cattle operations in Latin America and they avoided El Salvador because they couldn't get enough land they're not allowed to own more than 240 hectares of land. It's, they can't get the economy of scale. So they went to Nicaragua instead where you can buy 1,000, 2,000 hectares and you can have, um, you know, 1,000 cattle. Um, so that's one stupid rule. Um, there's uh, other stupid, the government are doing other stupid stuff here with regards to agriculture, like heavily subsidizing synthetic pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. They're with good intent, I'm sure, but um, they're handing out sometimes free and sometimes subsidized poisons to these farmers in the villages uh, i don't know what to do about that i was talking with texas slim last night i think about that um there are many problems still and all i can see is what is how to just incentivize good beef production and and get good beef on people's tables and really because i wanted some <laughs> right um there are is there anything um, against you being able to like is this under I'm not aware that I'm doing anything right illegal yet. I, 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 I've just employed someone who's a good Spanish speaker and we're going to start doing some research to make sure we're, we're all covered in terms of legal requirements here because 
uh, at some point someone's going to want to, you know, dob me in for something. Uh, I think everything we're doing is legal. Um, I don't think it's illegal to use your raw milk example. I don't think that you can buy raw milk here easily. Um, nice. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. There's already a couple of entrepreneurs just on this bit of coastline who are making butter and cream and kefir and all from Amazing. raw milk. Like it's Amazing. fantastic. So, but there's Shit still room. So good. We could do more. We, I, I can get raw milk here straight out of the vat. No problem. I, it's just whether, I don't think I have time to add that product yet, but um, just the logistics of keeping it covered and refrigerated is you have to be more careful with, with milk than with meat. It's a bit easier with meat. Um, so no, I haven't run into any issues like that, like I would in Australia. And even if I'm pretty confident that even if I do, I'll go, okay, well, I'll fix it from now on. And I'm not going to land, you know, in get, not going to get in heaps of trouble about right, it. Right. Just you won't be in, in prison with the gangs. <laughs> well, I have not, that's for sure. <laughs> I have not. Um, um, they, they do have, it's bureaucratic. They do, each, each animal has a document, um, you have to carry that document if you're transporting the animal or they'll maybe put you in jail for wow. cattle theft. So that's something that we do. Um, and in terms of licensing of facilities and stuff, well, one, one other little tidbit that I am aware of is that apparently it's been reported that there are, apparently there are a hundred beef processing facilities. There are a hundred unlicensed beef processing facilities in the country. Um, and there are only a handful of government licensed beef processing facilities so these other unlicensed ones uh i guess is where most of the meat the most of the beef that you see in the little old local markets that's unrefrigerated and just hanging where they they bring an animal in they kill it and that and chop it up and that day they sell it at the well the next few days <laughs> they sell it at the market without refrigeration so that that supply chain which wasn't good enough for me it, there's that supply chain and then there was the supermarket supply chain. There's nothing in between. I'm, I'm in between that. I'm doing cold chain management, but locally processed, locally grown, locally processed. So that's, that was the gap that I'm filling. Um, I guess a lot of those facilities are unlicensed and the government's not shutting them down. They, they have a practical, I guess they have a practical approach to the fact that people need to eat. Yeah. And maybe they learned a bit from, because remember they did lock down here strictly well before I was here, but it was a strict lockdown and people were, people were running out of food and i think they i like to think the government learned from that um there was this movement the white flag movement where people were waving white flags saying we're starving to death here when when the police drove oh, by really? and yeah and they eventually because they weren't even letting the little food trucks that they weren't even letting them drive around like when when did nuts at when, the start. when did so i know bukele was came to power in 2019 do you know when it was in 2019 early late i think it was late because it would have so covid would have been like one you know, of his first things one yeah. of his first things and <laughs> I, I i've heard similar to what you just said and obviously that's a massive blunder yeah. um but you know well i, I hate to even it seems make like apologies for it because yeah i was going to say it, it seems yeah. like they learned from it made a big about face and and then you know they seem to be again applying that logic and rationale rational thinking that i alluded to earlier like they were putting out actual sensible videos about hey if you want to be exactly. healthy in a time when there's something's going around you do that and i think they were even sending the only out government of- i saw in the world that were promoting on tv health and fitness you should get out and exercise you should avoid alcohol you should get yeah. sunlight 
Didn't they also send out boxes of like supplements and ivermectin and all that kind of stuff? Vitamin D, zinc. Yeah. So that, that, I mean, that's, that's incredible. Um, It's just too bad. They had to do the authoritarian lockdown first, but you know, I mean, I hate it. I really do hate it, but uh, especially in the early days, maybe you you have no idea what this is and you don't know how to respond and oh look other people in the world are responding this way so maybe i should too you know and i i think even he i mean i don't know what he was like prior to being president um but he's clearly very anti-status quo now i mean you look at the nature of his tweets in relation to political figures in other countries and policies that are being applied in other countries i mean he he gets that it's clown world happening yeah. everywhere and he calls it out i mean you know he's got a set of balls on him too um but you know he calls it out so i think he i think that's i wouldn't be surprised if that was a development over the last few years of him kind of really him realizing, really realizing. Yeah. yeah the degree of hypocrisy and the degree of, of corruption outside you know in the so-called developed world yeah and so i think that the um allowing those unlicensed abattoirs to continue is going to that's going to continue for now. And like the coconut vendors, so none of them have companies, none of them right, have bank right. accounts, um, none of them have licenses to operate. And he, they're not going to clamp down on that in a hurry here because it would be very unpopular. Like people need to eat and they like their lifestyle. And coming back to one of the things you said right at the start, yeah, people are out and about and having a great time here. I haven't mentioned that this, this episode yet, but people are ready to party and coming out. Every weekend they come down to the beach in droves, all the local families and stay in a hotel and just party. Um, they're always in the town squares are vibrant and full of people every evening, especially if it's Christmas or Easter or some festival. Um, the locals are loving the freedom they have now and the total safety to move around. And it's really nice to see um, to see them get out and, and party and just hang out on the beach and all of the restaurants and stuff belong here are full of locals on the weekends. And I, that's when I go to the city when it's quiet in the city because everyone <laughs> leaves the city to go and party and be with family and eat and drink. Uh, yeah. So they're just focused. They're not worried about climate change or transgender rights. They're just wanting to have a good time with their family, eat food and have a good time. And that's a great, environment to be to be in totally one of the one of the little peculiar things that i really love about el salvador because i've been there in, in november all through or at least two of the times i've been there the other one was i guess in the fall but um earlier in the fall they they love christmas like they're mad for christmas oh, day, yeah. right like they all sort christmas decorations come up like november 1st and they're everywhere and there's lights everywhere and the restaurants are like amazingly decorated you know, and I'm a big Christmas buff, so I love seeing the Christmas decorations everywhere and, you know, the, just the, the Christmas vibes uh, start early and they're intense there. And that's another uh, another positive. Or the another... fireworks actually got a bit much for me. The firework, firecrackers <laughs> for months. And maybe it starts up next this week for Easter. Maybe there'll be a, a week or so of fireworks again. Yeah. Well, can't be perfect, right? Um, what's What's the plan then? You know, is it just about streamlining what's going on and obviously scaling up and you know figuring out all the little bits and pieces regarding the different components of the business like you're you're in in El Salvador for the long term you want to build out this business you you mentioned that you know you didn't want to start with purchasing land do you kind of want to put that off as long as possible and just basically be the go-between be the one who's who ensures quality and then 
establishes the relationship with the end consumer like is tell me about how you see this playing out in the next five years yeah cool yeah five years seems like a long i haven't thought that far ahead but um at the moment it's yeah just just fixing each problem as they come up and i'm um, take just open to suggestions from people i'm people are asking for this and that and i'm like yeah okay let's try that um so we're so but immediately i want to add the the organs and where i've got a batch of tallow on so i've got to refine how we're doing that i've just i've put one person one employee on i'll have to get another um we sold out immediately i've got heaps of inquiries uh, already and i'll probably get more after coming on your show um uh because there's just been a real need for it there's just this this even the premium meats here they're just drenched in chemical brine like they're putting why, sodium why? phosphate and xanthium a- and carrots preservatives and softeners and you know some of those big t- tomahawks you get from from the meat shop that are sort of premium and they're melting your mouth like so melt in your mouth that it's like hang on that's because they're drenched in softening chemicals like right great and, and flavors <laughs> sugars and salts and preservatives and it's also 10 percent water they add 10 percent to the weight so you're getting a little bit ripped off too uh i think i don't know how this evolved i i was not familiar with this sorry we're on a tangent now about the no, chemicals no. I'd never seen this in Australia adding chemicals to meat. I'm just like, what? It was, and I was, and they don't even label it here necessarily. Sometimes it's labeled, sometimes it's not. But if you see the the, the wholesale box, it's usually on the label. And um, my theory is they just were able to age the meat rather than hanging it in a cool room for seven days. They were like, mm-hmm. oh, hang on, which is a massive pain. You've got all this space. You're running sure. the, running the cool room for seven days. You can't get the throughput because you've got to hold it there for seven days. A very fiat this, approach, if, yeah, if I, I do say this, so myself. Yeah, exactly. They worked out they could just soften the meat by adding some some chemicals uh, instead. I, I think that's how it evolved. And then they're like, well, cold chain management's not very good here. The A box of meat that comes from Nicaragua is frozen. It's supposed to be frozen. It's going to thaw out and re, it's going to thaw out many times. Right. Um, so let's put preservatives in too. And it's like, well, you know, could, let's add some, some flavor enhancers as well. So... <laughs> But I was eating these premium steaks on my trip a year ago and I was getting stomach issues like, and I couldn't work it out because I was only eating steak and eggs, which is like normal. And, and then I tried some of the meat without putting salt on it and raw. And I'm like, this tastes like sugar and salt. What's going on? And then we worked it out. And I've mentioned this to many other people. And after I mentioned it to them, they're like, oh yeah, it does make me feel a bit sick. <laughs> so I'm getting cut. Every time I tell this story to someone, they can't eat the... <laughs> that meat anymore and they want to buy from me so how convenient um, it's very convenient but it's true it's the truth it's uh citrates and like xanthan gum and carrageenan gum i don't know why they put that in meat it's like tree sap you don't want to eat that shit and even uh sodium phosphate you don't want to eat that and uh if sodium benzoate goes in like a preservative terrible for your guts um so um that's that tangent done um what was the question <laughs> the i think it was the next so, five years yeah yeah so um i think that there's going to be plenty of demand um i want to do maybe some different options i'm not sure if we'll go down the path of having different individual cuts because then it gets very confu- very complicated so it might just be limited to to mixed packs but maybe there'll be a mixed pack with organs or a mixed pack with sausages or whatever there might be a few different mixed packs and then uh, streamline the delivery and just keep scaling up as long, as far as the demand uh, increases, just try to keep meeting it. And I think it's going to blow up and then, yeah, get our own facility. Um, and then we'll, 
have to be sure that we've got good supply. So I need to keep finding good farms as well, other good farms. But I uh, had a really good chat with Texas Slim and uh, and my my colleague uh, Kiki uh, Bitcoin Baby on on Twitter um, about um, other problems with agriculture here. And how, like I need to just focus on this business. I'm really busy with that, but. I also see other problems here that are, it's not obvious to me how to fix them, but perhaps there's so many people who are interested. Um, and some of those ideas are like the, the, the little tenders in all of the villages here all sell shit like soda and it's, and even the chocolate here is mostly hydro, hydrogenated vegetable oil, like palm oil. It's just, just all junk food and obesity is a problem here, you know, and diabetes mm. is going to be a problem here. And it's really obvious and even among the kids the, the the parents don't know they go and buy in the morning big two liter bottles of soda and i don't think it's high fructose corn syrup but it's still sugar and all that crap so some kind of healthy tienda program i don't know how we could do that i'd love to see that maybe getting jerky in there maybe maybe you start with that i don't know but mm -hmm. if anyone has any ideas just please reach out to me or slim on twitter um uh, connecting, I'm very happy for, I'd love to see my business replicated by other people in other regions. Really happy to see that, um, to get that community, local community eating local food. Like it's, it doesn't even, with a lot of the locals, it doesn't even compute. They're like, when I say I'm opening a beef business, they, they say, oh, are you importing it? And I know, and they're like, oh, so you're exporting. I'm like, no, it's local beef for local people. And they're like, oh, right. Totally weird concept to them. I don't know why. Um, and even like all, a lot of the fruit and vegetables come in from Guatemala. Like it's just, there's, there's, there's still this legacy attitude of everything shit here, unless it's imported from the States. Um, right. And it's too hard to do business here. And it has been um, like the farmers used to have to pay the gangs um, every 15 days, a boy would come and get money from, from each farmer. Otherwise things would go badly for them. So right. this, it just made it so hard to do business that, that people stopped and plus the people stopped trying plus the brain drain, the entrepreneurial people left. And so the whole agriculture sector here is in, well, it's just a mess. There's, there is basically none like there's, there's coffee production, there's the sugar cane, there's a few good cattle farms. So we want to see, I would love to see, um, more locals get, I'd love to see farmers markets and more locals buying, local produce and how we make that happen i don't know other than kind of just building it um so i think that a lot of people maybe a lot of bitcoiners who who like the idea of doing some ranching uh maybe we can try to create a a roadmap for that a, a framework where because someone just comes here and buys land and tries to start farming it's going to be hard like you're going to have a lot of challenges um even if you are an experienced farmer so maybe with this El Salvador beef initiative, I've got to get used to saying that. Um, the El Salvador beef initiative might include um, having a roadmap, making it easier for people who do want to invest in, in good agricultural practices for lo local food for, for local people in El Salvador, but maybe don't know how to do it. Um, and one of the other limitations is processing facilities. So we're going to need more abattoirs and butchers here and I'm going to need to find more farms. Somehow we need to 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 head off, cut them off in terms of all this synthetic. Port. They're using too much of it. You know, maybe some of it's all right, but um, 
trying to use more ecological methods, which can still be very productive. So in the next five years, I'd like to see my business go well and make money and feed as many people as I can. Um, but I'd like to see many more businesses like it. And I'd like to see agriculture develop here in not in the disastrous, disastrous industrialized way, but I don't know mm -hmm. how to do that. But if anyone can help with that, then give me a hoy or, or give Texas Slim a hoy and we can talk about it. Well, where there's a will, there's a way. And uh, it seems like El Salvador is just, you know, there's going to be more and more people interested in that kind of stuff arriving there or, you know, uh, be, becoming awake to that kind of stuff for people that are there already. So hopefully that bodes well for, you know, the development of an agricultural industry in the, in the correct way. Um, I think this might be the last one I have for you, but you know, a lot of people are looking at going there as we said already. And I know like the beachfront property game is, you know, probably pretty hot right now. And the properties are fairly expensive. Is there, um, what is living, is, is it possible to live like up kind of in the mountains in the, in the more temperate areas? So let's say it's, not as hot and humid, you know, it's gets a little bit cool at night. Presumably the land is much cheaper. Like are people doing that? Is there, is there the possibility to live in a, you know, live in a nice place up in the mountains somewhere and drive a half an hour either way to go wherever you want to go? That's exactly what I'm looking for. And yes, I think it's absolutely possible. Firstly, beachfront property is not all expensive, only really maybe right here to Zonte between El Zonte and La Libertad, but further east or further west, it's still cheap. You can get like a big rancho um, even right on the beach or maybe only a, a couple of, you know, one block back from the beach with a house, with a pool um, for still under 200 grand. So you can get beachfront if you want and you can get it cheaply if you're willing to just go a bit out of El Sonte. And I think, yeah, that, that sort of has to happen in terms of some Bitcoiners maybe just going out there and setting up and then, and then some more will follow. Right. But uh, yeah, the mountainous area, there are so many microclimates in El Salvador and exactly as you say that in the mountains, once you get, I've been looking into this quite a bit because it's a bit hot for me down here. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. So up in the hills, as soon as you get above the, th well, you can go just here only a hundred meters up and you get the breeze at least. And the breeze is quite cooling. Um, but if you want to get the cool nights, it seems like you've got to get above a thousand meters, which is not far. It's just, just up there. Like even El Sa uh, San Salvador has, has parts that are above a thousand meters elevation. And then you get at night, you get below 20 degrees. Sorry, I'm speaking in meters and celsius yeah, yeah uh you get below 20 degrees in well, i'm canadian so i'm used to it. oh yeah good <laughs> no no need to apologize then sorry to the americans or wherever else um and if you go further up so you can go 2000 meters up and then everyone's wearing jumpers it still gets it still gets hot in the daytime though it still gets to 30 degrees so in the day but then at night it gets right down to maybe even 16 which is very very pleasant so um Yes, there are places like that, even above the thousand meter line. And there are a lot of places above the thousand meter line that are, as you say, within a half an hour drive still from San Salvador right. or from the beach. And that's so like, like a mountain or a volcano or some kind, big view of the valley and or coastline in front of you. Commissar. 
and and you know if you buy land's still cheap yeah land's cheap and building you know you... uh i don't have that knowledge um building the probably the builders are fairly busy now right um you can there are good builders the the building quality now is can be good that's usually cement and re reinforced concrete and and vessel blocks um but they do it well because there are a lot of earthquakes here they have to do it well um yeah commissar was where i have a similar dream but right up what, what's right that? up north Commissar is just uh, it's only 20 kilometers from here and it's on the thousand meter line and you have beautiful ocean views and you look out over the valley and it gets down below 20 degrees at night um sounds good and land is uh, yeah i'm about to look at some keep, land keep me actually. posted yeah <laughs> well there's also nice there are beautiful cabins and stuff like that for sale it's just and it seems like the best place to find them is on facebook marketplace um but if people if your listeners are genuinely thinking about buying here you just got to come here first like yeah or totally you have totally. to look around come here and just rent a place you won't find anything there. online really you just have to get boots on the ground to understand the potential challenges with access and um yeah and you live off i mean presumably you could live off grid there there's enough sunlight to power some solar panels and, and that jazz and you know you get your yeah, starlink you know, satellite have, and yeah well even cell signals generally good because um there are a lot of towers along so the coast small. and there's a lot of, yeah. And there's a lot of hills to put towers on. So cell service is generally good. Um, there's not a lot of home solar, but I see there's already one company popped up now doing home solar and off-grid homes, even not even solar hot water is not common here, which is crazy because it's, there's plenty. Well, that <laughs> along the South coast, nobody has hot water because it's so hot, but right. if you were living in the hills you want to have hot water and absolutely solar would make sense and you could do solar uh for your electricity as well um i'm sure yeah there are even government subsidies for that too if you're interested in that um so yeah off-grid would be possible here um building might be challenging um and negotiating to buy land is challenging um prices can change even after you make agreements so negotiating for bigger purchases like vehicles or land you should do with a lawyer and right. lawyers are cheap you $30 and you get a lawyer to sit down and negotiate it and then you write up the contract and then you sign and only then is it an agreement that's just the local culture um, but some of the land can be very steep or the access can be very difficult or even the title there could be some local will know no nah, no nah, that's this other guy owns some of that land right, right, so you have right. to be here still like yeah but, there can be issues like that. Uh, a sibling arrives and says, no, this is part of this is my land. So you have to be here and work with a lawyer throughout the negotiation. And, but there, there are real estate agents now that help you with that, that, that accept Bitcoin for all the land they sell, all of the properties they sell, they will accept. Yeah, I've Bitcoin. seen a few on Twitter. Yeah. So it's awesome. exciting, but I'm still hot for now. I'm just holding Bitcoin uh i'm not wanting to buy at the moment because yeah. the price might do what it does every few years well it's the constant tension right you know when when do you spend some bitcoin and when do you try to hold on to it i mean we're, we're almost certainly in one of those periods where you want to hold on to it because it's had such a, a big drawdown but i suspect yeah, exactly. at some point and in the future this, you... um, it's this it's almost this limitation on bitcoin is um the, the opportunity cost of 
of allocating the capital into a business is such that potentially such that we might not invest much capital into a new business. So that is a tension for us, yeah. But this little business of mine, I've been able to, it's sort of bootstrapping itself. I haven't spent that much. So well, it also creates an incentive to be hyper efficient in whatever business you do start. Yep. And you start know? small so that, and start yeah, making so that, money from the start. That could be yep. that could be a good thing. And then also, you know, it'll 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 find its level eventually, you know, like we, we always, of course, we want this to happen as soon as possible. So we were always impatient, I guess, but you know, people will hodl. And when they feel like uh, deploying that capital is more valuable to them than continuing to hodl, they'll deploy it into something presumably extremely meaningful, because again, you're having to let go of the, the, the sats that you covet so much. And so what I see happening is, you know, maybe it takes some more time, but ultimately we get all these businesses, enterprises and all this kind of stuff, services of various kinds that are just like people are really into, you know, because again, they're, they're not going to get into it. They're not going to fund it with their own sats unless it's something incredibly meaningful to them and unless they really want to put their, you know, their fullness of their capacity, potential or life into it. And I think, you know, I, I think that's just going to create that's why the Bitcoin parallel economy, let's say, is going to be so outcompete the legacy one because it's going to be filled with so much higher quality stuff. And it seems like El Salvador is going to be a place where a lot of that is concentrated, you know, because it's a small place and they're the first mover on so many of these things that everyone's coming in. And at that point where they decide it's time to deploy capital to actually build something, you, I, I feel like you're going to get all these businesses popping up that are just awesome, you know, because it's people really you know believing in or being super into whatever it is they're doing and that transfers into quality for the customer and you know i think i'm excited for that i can't wait to see it unfold yeah i agree i, I think it's just gonna absolutely boom here and i think you're right in terms of the um preventing the misallocation of capital and malinvestment from the fiat mindset will maybe it means it happens a bit more slowly but that's probably for the best as well yeah mm, yeah well man uh this has been great thank you for fielding all my el salvador and, and beef related questions did you have anything you wanted to touch on or, or shill or discuss before we shut it down thank you for having me that's been great to catch up again um and yeah if you're coming to el salvador and you want some good beef uh just hit me up on twitter for now we'll have a website soon and so on we had another company name but i'm just gonna go with beef back better because it's kind of catchy most people don't get the joke of where it came from like build back better that, yeah, that was yeah. a brief uh, bit of stupidity for a couple of years ago but even though most people don't remember build back better uh beef back better seems to still be catchy name so just uh, look for me here when you come I like over it. and I'll get you some were mistakes. You, were you doing, because I saw on your Twitter feed, were you like messing around with another logo and it was going to be called something natural or something like that? Yeah, carnes locales naturales, which, and we're going to shorten it to Calona, which would have worked well in Spanish too, but Beef Back Better just has a, well, I was, I, you know, I liked it too, um, but yeah. Beef Back Better just seems to have a, a catchier ring to it and probably a bit more sticky. So I, su I support cool. that uh, branding decision. But I will, I mean, I will definitely, next time I'm in town, uh, hit you up and we'll, we'll have to get together, but also we'll have to eat some of that meat. So I look forward to that. Sounds good. We have a, local, a guy from, from France has moved here and is uh, starting to cater events. We're going to do gourmet burgers. We've got a whole lot of stuff planned. So oh, I look man. forward to seeing you here. Sounds awesome. All right, man. Well, look, thanks again uh, for the chat and the time. Uh, good luck in you know all your endeavors. As, as you said, there's still lots to be ironed out, but it seems like you're on the right path. So best of luck and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you.
Slip, slip, up, slip, up, slip.